Welcome in to the Deep Dive one day late. I know it's not Wednesday, it's Thursday, it's 7.30 p.m. Hey, same time, different day. What does it matter? The Word of God is always effective. It never returns void, Isaiah 55, anybody. And we are going to dive back into the Kings of Compromise with part 28 of this series. And I hope that you have been enjoying going through First and Second Kings. Lots of dark material and I have to tell you, we got three, not one, not two. We got three chapters of dark material today because compromise is a thing. And these things are written to warn us. I know we don't like to be warned, but sometimes we need a warning. We need a warning. We need a yield sign in life, right? Or else we're going to crash into somebody else. We need a stop sign on the road or else we might hit somebody or cause an accident. We need a speed limit. As much as I hate them, we need them. And in God's word, there are plenty of speed limits. And the book of First and Second Kings is basically one long speed limit sign. Don't do these things and you will be blessed. Do them and you will be stressed. So let's get into it. Part 28, Kings of Compromise. All right, all right, all right. And I didn't say already, but put, put, put your uh, mouse on the subscribe button and then press the left button on your mouse. How about that? Subscribe to the channel, like the video, and click the notification bell so you can get notified every time we go live. We are going through uh, first sec, uh, 2 Kings chapters 13, 14, and 15. And I call this talk the cost of compromise. So this whole series has been about the, the slow decline of Israel's uh, kingdom from the compromise of Rehoboam, well, really Solomon before him, and then, of course, Rehoboam, his son, his, his nitwit son, Jeroboam, the, um, uh, the uh, work overseer who takes the northern kingdom and institutes his own self-imposed religion. And then from there, it just continues to decay, decline. It's not a good time in Israel's history. Not a good time maybe in our country's history. We will see. Time will tell. But in so many ways, our day today is very reflective of their day back then. Because as we're going to see in these chapters, there's, you know, if you were imagine a stock chart where the stock is kind of like cratering, you never see a stock. Well, rarely do you see a stock just crater in a straight line. You see it kind of like Go down and pop up a little bit, then go down and pop up a little bit and go down. Well, that's what happens with national morality, national fidelity to God, national, you know, goodness. It doesn't go, it doesn't plummet. I mean, there are some black swan events like that, like, you know, Hitler's Germany, uh, Mao's China and uh, other places like that. But most often you see a, a culture decline with little blips of goodness. That's what you see in this second half now of the book of Second Kings, blips of good but no one's straight. No one's fixing it. It's just they're kind of postponing the inevitable demise of the kingdom. So with that in mind, let's go through the text and take a look at these three chapters. And then we're going to draw some truths on the cost of compromise. Okay, right to the text. Second Kings chapter 13, verse 1. It says this. In the 23rd year of Joash, son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, son of Jehu, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 17 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord by following the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit, and he did not turn away from them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel, and for a long time he kept them under the power of Haziel, king of Aram, and Ben-Hadad, his son. Okay. Right off the bat, I need us to see something. 
And this is so important to the entirety of this text. Remember King Jeroboam. We will call him at this point Jeroboam the first because we're going to be introduced to Jeroboam the second in our passage today. But Jeroboam the first was the work foreman who was very noble in his efforts under Solomon, who took the northern kingdoms, the ten, king, the ten tribes, in a civil secession from the union, if you will, of Israel. And he became the first king of the northern kingdom. But the text here says that the king in uh, uh, in the uh, the king Jehoahaz, son of Jehu, this is the northern kingdom, remember, Jehu wiped out the family of Ahab. God promised that his son would reign on the throne for four generations. We're going to see that as well in this passage. But Jehoahaz, his son, reigns for 17 years. He does what Jeroboam, son of Nebat, did or caused Israel to commit, the sins that he caused Israel to commit. Let's just go back and talk about that sin because it is so dominant in these three chapters. What is the theme of Jeroboam's life or sin? Remember I talked about the fact that Jeroboam introduced a spiritual, not religious um, kind of ideology to the Northern Kingdom. Back, way back, <laughs> centuries ago in this, in this series, in 1 Kings chapter 12, what does it say in verse 28? So the king, this is Jeroboam, took counsel and made two calves of gold. Uh, he said to the people, you've got up to Jerusalem long enough. Remember, this was his strategy. We don't want to go to Jerusalem because we don't want, I don't want to lose you. I don't want to lose your, your, your loyalty to me. So don't go there. I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to make some temples. I'm going to make my own religion. I'm going to make my own idols. I'm going to make my own feast days. I'm going to make my own ideology that you should be a part of. And then, therefore, you don't have to go down to Jerusalem. That's too much work for you. And we talked about this. It is the modern-day equivalent of spiritual, not religious. I don't want to have to go to church to be a Christian, and I don't need to go to church to be a Christian, and I, I basically don't trust organized religion. This is, this is our modern-day mantras. I don't need to have somebody tell me how to believe in order to be a, a good person. And, and what you're really doing there is nothing new. It's as old as 1 Kings chapter 12. Really, you could go back to the days of the judges. No, no, no. You could go back to the days of Cain, really, because that's exactly what Cain wanted to do. I want to do it on my own terms. Remember, I said it's Burger King faith. It's have it your way faith. And I shared this with you, and I want to put it back up again way back, I think, in part 15 of this series in the Kings of Compromise. But sp the spiritual, not religious creed is very simple. It goes like this. I'll have the forgiveness of... Jesus gives, the good karma Buddha offers, the reincarnation Hinduism promises in case I mess up this life, and the multiple wives Islam or monotheism, or Mormonism, sorry, allows. I'll have a side of charismatic happy feelings when I worship and totally authentic relationships of a non-denominational small group, the positive reinforcement from Joel Osteen, the motivation of T.D. Jakes, I'll take the tolerance of Oprah, the beauty of the Catholic Church architecture, the coffee of the Calvary Chapel Church, and the go-with-culture doctrine of the United Methodists or Episcopalians. In other words, I'll have it my way. I don't want conviction or accountability. I don't want to be asked or sac to sacrifice or serve. I don't, don't, don't ask me to give my money or I'm leaving. Don't challenge my cherished sins. After all, I'm not as bad as other people. I'll come to church when nothing else is going on. And when I show up, I expect the service to end on time, the kids ministry to bless my children, and everyone to know my name. I mean, this is modern Christianity in so many places. And it is an affront to the blood of Jesus. It is an affront to the holiness of God. And it really is the sins of Jeroboam in 2 Kings that these kings follow in. What does God do? He hands them over to their enemies. Let's go back 
to uh, verse 3. It says, the Lord's anger burned against Israel. We think, oh, God doesn't have a problem with me doing Christianity in my own terms. After all, he loves me. No, God, God's anger burns against those who would compromise the faith, those who would have Christianity on their own terms. You are, you are, you are storing up wrath for yourself, Scripture says. And I would suggest to you very strongly that those who want this kind of faith are not actually Christians at all. They want to call themselves Christians. A lot of people are going to call themselves Christians. Jesus says in the last days, there's going to be many who say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not? And he's going to say, I never knew you. There's going to be many surprises on the day of judgment because, because just saying you're a Christian and just believing in God is not necessarily Christianity. The demons, James says, the, de the demons believe in God and they shudder. So if you think you believe in God, but there's no activity, there's no follow through in your life, you're compromised. The Lord's anger is burning against you. And the Bible says this, that he kept them under the power of King Hazael of Aram and Ben-Hadad, his son. So God hands them over to their enemies to kind of wake them up, stir them up, to show them that they need repentance and, and there is none. And things go poorly from here in 2 Kings, in the Northern Kingdom, and even in the Southern Kingdom. We're going to see that in just a moment. So let's go on. Verse 4 says this, Then Jehoahaz, again, king of the Northern Kingdom, sought the Lord's favor, and the Lord listened to him. Okay, time out right here. This is a bad king who's doing his own thing, and he sees that things are going poorly, so he seeks God, and God listens. This is the good news for compromised Christians. If you seek God, he will respond. He will listen to you. He will hear you. And it says this, for he saw how severely the king of Aram was oppressing Israel. Now, this was the judgment that God brought upon Israel, but God saw the severity of it and still responded to Jehoahaz's pleas for mercy. And the Lord, verse 5, provided a deliverer for Israel, and they escaped from the power of Aram. So the Israelites lived in their own homes as they had before, but they did not turn away from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he had caused Israel to commit. They continued in them. Also, the Asherah pole remained standing in Samaria." A couple of contextual insights here. The Asherah pole was a very straight pole. Some people believe it may have been a phallus. Uh, it represented uh, sexual fertility, blessing upon your crops, upon your economy. And it was just, you know, sex and money combined together in one idol. That has been, <laughs> that has been the idol of humanity since the days of Lot. Uh, money and greed and sex and pleasure. Those are the two idols that draw our hearts away from God. Now, I just want to make sure that you see, don't miss the headline. God listens and, and helps Jehoahaz. Some of you who, who might be compromised Christians, you might not even think you are, but you might be, you don't realize this, but God still loves you, wants to come to your aid and bring you back to him. But, but caution here that you don't do what Jehoahaz does and so many other kings of Israel do, and that is you only come to God when things are terrible, and as soon as they get better, you walk away. I come to the church when I don't have any money. I come to the church when my marriage is messed up. I come to the church when my kid's is out of whack. I come to the church when my life is falling apart. And then God is merciful and kind, and he puts things back together for you in the church, and the people come around and rally around you, and you get back together. And then before you know it, you're confident, and you just decide, okay, I can do it on my own again. And you're out the door, and you're not connected to Christ. You're not connected to his body and things go poorly again. You've got this roller coaster r relationship with God. It's the cycle of the judges that God handed them over to the enemies and they suffered and God, and then they sought God and God healed them and then they got prideful and they went back to their sins and God handed them over to enemies and cycle after cycle after cycle happens in Israel's life. And it's happening again here in 2 Kings chapter 13. 
Be careful of this kind of relationship with God because it is the most miserable kind of relationship with God. If you're going to follow the Lord, follow him with all of your heart. Just, I know, I'm not asking, I'm not telling you to be perfect. We are not perfect. Um, we must pursue Christ-likeness, perfection, absolutely. But we stumble and fall in many ways, James says. We have confession of sin and we have the need for that in scripture. And that is absolutely part of our testimony. But we got to go all in. We got to go all in. Don't, don't ride the fence. It, the most miserable Christians on the planet ride the fence. They're half in and they're half out. And that's what you're going to see here in 2 Kings chapter 13. Verse 7. Nothing had been left of the army of Jehoahaz except 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, 10,000 foot soldiers. For the king of Aram had destroyed the rest and made them like the dust at threshing time. This is bad because the kingdom of Israel is down to how many? <laughs> this is incredible. How many chariots? 10. For context, all you got to do is go back to Ahab about 100 years earlier, and they had 2,000, 2, 000, 000, 000, 000 chariots. Now they're down to 10. From 2,000 to 10. It's an amazing decline, precipitous, and all based on the fact that this nation had compromised their faith, their trust in God. They, they served the gods around them, the, the, the gods of the nations around them. Verse 8 says this, As for the other events of the reign of Jehoahaz, all he did and his achievements, are they not written in the books? In the book of the annals of the kings of Israel, Jehoahaz rested with his ancestors and was, and was buried in Samaria, and Jehoash, his son, succeeded him as king. Get ready for some confusing names because the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom have the same king's names. And then there's just like one letter off. And then later on in this cha uh, chapter 15, we're going to see a king with two names. And all of that is done just to confuse you <laughs> and keep someone like me gainfully employed explaining the scriptures to you. Anyway, here's what it says in verse 10. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah. Okay, so now what you're going to see, and you see this regularly, is uh, the, the kings of Israel are measured by the time frame of the kings of Judah. And the kings of Judah are going to be measured by the time frame of the kings of Israel. Now that's all going to change. And it's not going to change with uh, the, the um, destruction of Israel at the hands of Assyria. And it's not going to change with the destruction of Judah at the hands of Babylon. It's all going to change with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Years and times and dates are always measured by the most powerful sovereign of a people. So the, the statement in the 37th year of Joash is saying, Joash is the guy that we're going to measure time by because he's the most important person. He's the king of Judah. When Jesus' birth is announced, what do we know from Luke's account? It's in the days of Caesar Augustus. So Caesar Augustus is the most important person on the planet at that time. Jesus is born. Uh, we, we know the story. Jesus is born. Disciples are raised up. The, the, he dies. He rises again. He goes to heaven. He sends the Holy Spirit. The church explodes the roman empire is overtaken by the christian church and from about i don't know i think four to five hundred a.d the dates and the times of all humanity from that point forward are measured by the year of who the year of anno domine the year of our lord so every time and this is so important every time we write the date the year we are saying that jesus christ is the king and the most important person in the world. Booyah, atheists. <laughs> 
come up with a different dating system, but you can't. You know why? Because it's fixed. It's done. And we are testifying every time we write the date down to the fact that Jesus is the king of the universe. So long, <laughs> long detour to get back to uh, this very simple passage here in verse 10. It says, Jehoahash, son of Jehoaz, became king of Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 16 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He continued in them. Okay, again, the sins of Job, Jeroboam are what? Compromise. I'll have it my way kind of faith. And you, so you have a father like that, and now you have a son like that, and you have this, continu you have this continued compromise kind of my, my brand of following the Lord religion. Doesn't work, doesn't last, doesn't help, doesn't heal. Just slowly deteriorates you. The, st the stock chart just continues to peck downward with little blips of, of favor in the middle of them. Okay, verse 12, it says this, As for the other events of Jehoahash, all he did in his achievements, including his war against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the annals of the kings of Israel? Jehoahash rested with his ancestors and Jeroboam, his son, that's Jeroboam the second now, succeeded him on the throne. Jehoash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. So, you know, we're just going from king to king and it's going to get worse as we get into chapter 15, where it's just like dashes, like little you know, blips on the screen, these kings who at the time were the most important people on the planet. And yet, and yet they are just blips on the narrative in 2 Kings. Never worry about who's super important right now. In the grand scheme of eternity, they are blips on the screen. Amen? So verse 14, it says this, Now Elisha, remember him? He's the prophet who succeeded Elijah. Elijah started his ministry back in 1 Kings chapter 17. Well, guess what? This is, we're coming to the end of Elisha's prophetic ministry in 2 Kings chapter 13. So this moment is a landmark moment for the northern kingdom of Israel because they are going to lose Elisha. Elijah had uh, basically been God's mercy to them for several years, and Elisha takes over, and God had extended the mercy, and now it's coming to an end. The Lord's prophetic word is being removed from the northern kingdom of Israel. Always be aware of that. That the scripture says in Proverbs, he being often reproved and hardens his neck shall suddenly be cut off and that without mercy. Uh, this is what Israel's experiencing. They've been reproved by Elijah and ignored, and reproved by Elisha, and now they've also ignored him. And now he is going to be taken out of the picture, and the kingdom is going to spiral out of control from this point forward. Anyway, it says this, he had been suffering, Elisha, from the illness from which he died. Jehoahash, king of Israel, went down to see him and wept over him. My father, my father, he cried, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Now, obviously, that is just hearkening back to the good old glory days of Elijah and Elisha's ministry, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel mentioned there. And Elisha says, get a bow and some arrows, and he did so. Now, this is an amazing picture because Elijah's going to give him a little bit of mercy. This is Jehoahash who asked for deliverance, who is not serving God, and yet God's going to give him mercy through the hands of Elisha. He says, get a bow and some arrows. He did so. Verse 16, take the bow in your hands. And he said, uh, he said to the king of Israel, when he had taken it, Elisha, look at this moment, put his hands on the king's hands. This is a kind of like a gesture of uh, communicating God's grace to this pagan, not pagan, but compromised king. And Elisha is going to give him an opportunity to win a war here. Verse 17 says, open the east window. And he's, he said, and he opened it. Shoot, Elisha said, and he shot the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Aram. Elisha declared, you will completely destroy the Arameans at Aphek. So Elisha is actually prophesying good for the northern kingdom, even though they are in their compromised state. Verse 18, it says this, Then he said, Take the arrows, and the king took them. Elisha took, told him, Strike the ground. He struck it three times and stopped. Verse 19, 
Notice this. The man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it. But now you would defeat it only three times. Okay, let me give you some contextual insight into all this passage. Number one, this is a very common ancient world um, symbolic gesture of going to war. You open the window towards your enemies and you shoot an arrow to kind of like signify I'm coming for you. And this is Elisha's kind of like, you know, co-opting these illustrations from the ancient world to say you're going to win. And the whole beating the arrows in the ground, very common. These are common practices. Elisha is saying, I want you to have confidence that the God you prayed to will be with you and give you what you asked of him. But there was a problem. He's, his heart, Jehoash's heart here, is being tested. Are you all in with God? And you will notice that, that when Elisha says, take the arrows and strike the ground, he doesn't tell him to stop. But he stops without Elisha telling him to stop. You have this very specific step-by-step instructions from Elisha for Jehoash. Uh, take the arrow, took the arrow. Shoot it, shot it. Take the arrows, took, took the arrow. Start beating the ground, beats the ground. And stops after three hits. There was no, it's like a game of Simon Says where you say, you know, Simon Says, raise your hand. Simon Says, put your hand down. Put your hand up. And like Simon Says, Simon didn't say put your hand up and you put your hand up. This is exactly what's going on right here. But it was a test of the king's heart. And really what it was, it was revealing the king's heart. The king could only and would only go so far with God. And there is a tremendous danger. It's a tremendous danger of going only so far with your faith in Christ. Man, if you're going to believe in Christ, go all the way. Seriously. <laughs> this, this movement is not for the half-hearted, the half-in. This is a movement of total commitment to God. Surrender. My money, my life, my family, my home, my job, my, my future, my past, everything is in his hands because he made everything anyway. He is the God of all things. And to go halfway with the God of all things is to live in complete disarray because you are living, um, you are living counter to reality. You're living outside of reality. He is the God of all things. To not give him all things in your life is, is anathema to who he is. And that is exactly what we see in the kings of Israel in 2 Kings chapter 13. It says in verse 20, Elisha died and was buried. Now a Moabite raiders used to enter the country every spring. Now this is about two years later. And I'm going to tell you why it's two years later in just a moment. But verse 21 says this. So Elisha's dead for two years. Moabite raiders coming in and they're raiding the country every spring. Once, verse 21, once while some Israelites were burying a man, Suddenly they saw a band of raiders, so they threw the man's body into Elisha's tomb. When the body touched Elisha's bones, the man came to life and stood up on his feet. Okay, we know it's two years later because only Elisha's bones are left. That was the burial procedure. You buried the whole body, you came back, and you took the bones away once the flesh and the organs all rotted away, and then you buried the bones in a, in, 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 <clears throat> alone. I don't know if they actually went through that process with Elisha. I'm just saying that by this time, all the, only the bones are left. The flesh and the organs would have rotted away. Now, look at the picture. These men are trying to bury their friend. They're trying to bury a dead man. They see the Moabite raiders coming. The Moabite raiders are going to come and they're going to kill them. To save their own life, they throw the man's body into the tomb of Elijah because they're thinking, let's just get out of here as fast as possible. So they toss the body at the dead man and he comes back to life. Isn't this an amazing picture? What you have here is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, who in his death achieves life for us. And in his death, provides the miracle of new birth for us. And the funny thing is that the people who took Jesus, okay, Caiaphas and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests, and they threw, and they 
threw him into the tomb. That's really what they did. Caiaphas said, remember Caiaphas says in John chapter 7, I think, it's better for one man to die than for the whole nation to perish. In other words, let's just hand him over to the Romans because he's stirring up the people so much that the Romans are going to come in and take our country. So let's just give him over as a, like, a, like a peace offering to them. And then we'll be saved if we hand him over. And that's what these guys are doing. They're taking their dead friend and they toss him into the grave. And the guy comes back to life again. This is a picture of Jesus that though he was thrown into the grave by the people who were trying to save their own skin, their active, their selfish act of handing Jesus over to the Romans actually provides life for those of us who are dead in our trespasses and sins. And we, through, the, through contact with Jesus' death, identification with him in baptism and death and resurrection of life coming out of the waters, we are born again into new life and we will never die the second death because of Jesus. Beautiful hints of the gospel here in 2 Kings chapter 13. Just a reminder that the story of the, gospel, the Bible is about Jesus. Okay, verse 22. Hazael, king of Aram, opposed Israel throughout the reign of Jehoahaz, but the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion and showed concern for them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To this day, he has been unwilling to destroy them or banish them from his presence. Let's stop there for a second and just remind you that it is because of who God is and not because of who Israel is, that he is not destroying them. And it was why? Because of his promise. His promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give this land to you. I'm going to multiply your descendants. And what scripture repeatedly asks us to do is very simple. Trust God's word. Period. That's it. That's why you have the covenants, by the way. That's why you have the covenants of the, um, the covenant with Abraham, which is the covenant of Israel, the covenant of the land, which is to own the promised land, the covenant of Moses, that the law will always stay in effect, that the, the covenant of David to have a king who is in David's lineage to always sit upon the throne of Israel, the covenant of Christ's blood to cleanse us and wash us from our sins, always and forever, we are sealed in the finished work of Jesus. And what we have to see in spite of Israel's unfaithfulness, is that God is faithful. He does not save them because they're good. He does not save them because they repent. He does not save them because they got their act together. He saves them because he, pro he made a promise and he is always true to his promise, which means that there are promises in the Bible that you have not taken advantage of. Uh, the promise of first, uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 7. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, right? The promise of Matthew 28. I am with you until the very end of the age. The promise of First uh, Thessalonians 5, 28. Uh, you, God will strengthen your whole spirit, soul, and body, and you will be kept blameless in him. Uh, God is faithful. He will surely do it. These are promises for you. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. These are Old Testament prof, uh, you know, promises. Um, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That's a New Testament promise. The, the promise of the Holy Spirit who will come in and dwell inside of you and teach you all things and lead you into all truth and guide you. These are also promises that are true. And what you are asked to do in Scripture is trust God, trust his word and live according to it. That is why God does not destroy Israel in spite of their repeated and flagrant disobedience to his word. Verse 24, Hazael king of Aram died, and Ben-Hadad his son succeeded him as king. Then Jehoahash son of Jehoahaz recaptured from Ben-Hadad son, son of Hazael the towns he had taken in battle from his father Jehoahash. Three times Jehoahash <laughs> defeated him, and so he recovered the Israelite towns. So God is faithful. 
God gives them grace. God gives them back some property that they lost because of their unfaithfulness. This is the this is the promise keeping God that we serve. If God was good to Jehoahaz and Jehoahash and Joash and all of these other Ash guys, uh, <laughs> my head went somewhere else right there. Please forgive me, Lord. If God was good to them, in spite of their evil, you can take it to the bank. He will be good to you in spite of your failures and inconsistencies. And that is the one thread of hope, the one thread of grace that comes through this text again and again. Now that's chapter 13. Let's turn to page two, chapter 14. Verse one. In the second year of Joash, son of Jehoahaz, I'm sorry, Joahaz, king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, began to reign. Now we're back to the southern kingdom. Okay, so just to get clarity here, okay? We're back to the southern kingdom of Judah, David's kingdom, that has a promise that they will always have a son of David on the throne. It says this, he was 25 years old when, and this is Amaziah, when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoiadin of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not like David his father. Now just remember this, David is the gold standard. David is the one by which all other kings are measured. And the reason why is because David had a heart after God's own heart. David followed God completely. Of, of course, the scripture is very clear that in the matter of Uriah the Hittite and in, in the matter of the census, and there are very big mistakes that David made, but he always repented. He always turned back to God. Remember a couple of months ago, I think I shared with you the difference between Solomon's demise and David's demise is that when Solomon sinned, he didn't repent. And when David sinned, he did repent. That was the difference between those two guys. And the gold standard, the gold standard of kings in Israel is David. And he, every king is measured by him because he is the true picture of Jesus Christ who does everything David does except he doesn't sin and he doesn't need to repent. Jesus was sinless. Anyway, it says this, uh, not, like this not like David his father, he did in all things as Joash his father had done, but the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. These high places are mentioned over a hundred times in the books of First and Second Kings. And the reason why is because they are a stumbling block in Israel's spiritual life. And what they were, were they were altars that the pagans before them, the Canaanites before them, had set up on high hills because the thought in the ancient world was if you were on a higher plane, then you were closer to God or the gods. And so you had to go up to these high places and you had to sacrifice your sons, your daughters, your grain, your wheat, your cattle, whatever, to these false gods. And then they would bless you with prosperity, fertility, and all these kind of things. Uh, what you have to understand is that the Lord said, um, you're going to go into the land, you're going to destroy all of the, these high places, and you're going to build one temple, one temple where I will meet with you, well, you'll bring the tabernacle in to that place, to the place that I put my name, and you will worship me in that one place. It's a picture, it's a picture of uh, the Christian faith. There is one way to God. There is one door. There is one name by which we are saved. There is one way to worship through Jesus Christ. And everything else is a false God and every other ideology is a false faith and every other way of salvation is actually no way of salvation. Jesus is the one way road to heaven. And that's the picture here. But Israel did not tear down the high places and the high places became thorns in their side. It is a picture for our spiritual condition. There are things that we allow to live in our lives. There are things that we allow to continue in our lives that breed complacency or breed compromise. And we need to do everything we can to tear down these idols, to tear down these high places and to follow God wholly in Christ Jesus. It's a picture of our sanctification process, uh, putting to death the misdeeds of the body, as Paul says in Romans chapter six, so that we do not indulge the flesh. Okay. So 
Where are we? We're with uh, Amaziah, king of Judah. Verse 5, as soon as royal power was firmly in his hand, he struck down his servants who had struck down the king, his father. Remember, Joash had been betrayed by his uh, associates. So Amaziah gets revenge on them. But he did not put to death the children of the murderers according to what is written in the law of Moses where the Lord commanded fathers shall not be put to death because of their children nor children put to death because of their fathers. That's in Deuteronomy. But each one shall die for his own sin. This is important because what it's showing you is the character of Amaziah. Amaziah wants to follow God's word. And uh, he wants to obey completely as best as he can. Of course, he's not dealing with the high places. That's going to be, again, the the downfall, the stumbling block in Israel's future. But he's a man of the word. So God rewards. And look what happens in verse 7. It says this, He struck down 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt and took uh, Selah by storm, and he called it Jokthiel, which is its name to this day. Then Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, Come, let us look one another in the face. And, Jeho- and Jehoash, king of Israel, sent word to Amaziah, king of Judah. A thistle in Lebanon uh, sent a, to a cedar in Lebanon, saying, Give me your daughter for my son, uh, I'm sorry, to my son for a wife. And a wild beast of Lebanon passed by and trampled down a thistle. Now, this is what Amaziah has done. He has had a little victory. And pride comes into his heart. And then he turns on Israel, his family, I know they're the northern kingdom of Israel. They have, there's this secession thing going on. There's a divided kingdom, period. But he's decided, I'm going to take on my brothers. <laughs> this is what pride does to you, by the way. And this is what pride does in the church. We get a little victory, and we start to turn on each other. We get a little peace. We start to turn on each other. We get you know, a little benefit in our life, and, and, and we start to you know, pick fights we don't need to p- pick. Uh, and, and the amazing thing is, is that the, uh, the king in, in the northern kingdom... Jehoash is like, don't do this. Look, look at the very next verse. Verse 10, you have indeed struck down Edom. Like you, you won that battle. God gave that to you. And now your heart has lifted you up. You, you've become prideful. This is the son, this is the, um, the northern kingdom's king. He's not a good man, but he's able to see sin when he sees. It's an amazing thing here. He says, be content with your glory and stay at home for why should you provoke trouble that you fall, you and Judah with you? Isn't it amazing to see the compromised king in the north challenged the pride of the heart and the king in the south. And, and what, what happened actually was that uh, Amaziah defeated Edom and did something which 2 Kings doesn't tell us, but 2 Chronicles does. When Amaziah wins a battle with God's hand against Edom, look at this passage in 2 Chronicles chapter 25. This is incredible. After he came back from striking down the Edomites, he brought the gods of the men of Seir and set them up as his gods and worshiped them, making offerings to them. What on earth? These are the gods that failed Edom. But Amaziah says, now that I've beaten you, I'm going to take your gods and now I'm going to worship your gods. <laughs> so insane. But pride blinds us to this compromise in our own hearts. And that is why confession and confession to others is so important. It really is because it kind of humbles us and brings us to a broken place where we can finally find grace through the, through the mouth and the words of another Christian. Uh, so anyway, look at what else it says at the end of Second Chronicles chapter 25, verse 20 says this, Amaziah would not listen, even though the priest warned him, in order, for this was of God, in order that he might give them into the hands of their enemies because they had sought the gods of Edom. So God is not going to let his people get away with compromise. He's never going to. And that's a good thing because the, the world needs to see 
that sometimes the church gets chastised because the Lord has a bigger, better plan for the church in the future. And, and, and this is incredibly important for you. Yes, sometimes God will use unbelievers to purge sin out of you. <laughs> it's true. I know we think that we should always be better than unbelievers. It's not true. We should always live better lives than unbelievers. It's not true. We should always have better things than unbelievers because we're God's chosen. No, no. Sometimes God disciplines us through unbelievers so that we are chiseled and ready for God's purposes in our lives. He will use unbelievers to sharpen his believers. Isn't that, isn't that important? Because some of you have this, like, this dichotomy. It's unbelievers and believers. And believers are special and unbelievers are unspecial. And when God's like, no, I can take unbelievers. I can chisel my, my people with them as well. And that's exactly what we have happening here in 2 Kings chapter 14. Verse 10 says, You have indeed struck down Edom, and your heart has lifted you up. Be content with your glory. Remember? Uh, but then it says this, But Amaziah would not listen. So Jehoash, king of Israel, went up, and he and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced one another in battle at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. And Judah was defeated by Israel. And every man fled to his home. This is the compromised kingdom in the north is beating the southern kingdom in the south. And this is an important point. You know what Amaziah really struggled with? He struggled with trusting God's word because God had promised, God had promised Jehu way back in 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 30. I know the words get confusing, the names get confusing, but what he said to Jehu was, because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in, according to all that was in my heart, your sons to the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. You know who Jehoash is? He's the third generation from Jehu. Which means that if Amaziah had just listened to God's word, he would have known that Jehu's son was not going to be defeated. Jehu's third in line son was not going to be defeated because God had promised him the kingdom. And the same God that is faithful to you is going to be faithful to people who are unlike you. He, you you've got to know God's word if you want to see God's blessing on your life. And you've got to trust it. And that's what happens here in Amaziah. He gets prideful. He's so prideful, he doesn't even listen to his priests. He doesn't listen to the Lord. He doesn't listen to uh, the, 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 the compromised king in the north who tells him, don't do it. The scripture is very clear. Pride comes before a fall. It does. It always does. Raise your hand in the comments below if you've ever immediately fallen on your face after thinking you've got it all together. Okay, my hand's up. And not in the comments, but on the screen. We are all like that. And what scripture is constantly calling us to do is humble ourselves and trust God's plan and purpose in our lives and lean not on our understanding, but acknowledge him, trust him. Amen. Verse 13. And Jehoash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, and Jehoash, son of Ahaziah at Beth Shemesh, and came to Jerusalem and broke down the wall of Jerusalem for 400 cubits from the Ephraim gate to the corner gate. And he seized all the gold and silver and all the vessels that were found in the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house also hostages, and he returned to Samaria. What we have here, we have a hint of what's going to come down on Judah when uh, Nebuchadnezzar invades in about, I think from this point, about a little less than 150 years from now. This is about 720 BC. Um, Israel, uh, sorry, about 780 BC. The southern kingdom falls in 587 BC. So we have a little hint. Don't trust in God. Get prideful and arrogant. Stop listening to him is going to cost you everything. Uh, moving on in the passage, verse 15, it says this, Now the rest of Je the acts of Jehoash, all he did and his might and how he fought with Amaziah, king of Judah. Are they not written in the books of Chronicles of the king of Israel? We have those books, of course, in the Bible. Verse 16, And Jehoash slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. And Jeroboam, his son, reigned in his place. This is Jeroboam the second. 
Okay. Verse 17, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived 15 years after the death of Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, king of Israel. Verse 18, now the rest of the deeds of Amaziah, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the king of Judah? And they made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish. But they sent after him to Lachish and put him to death there. And they brought him on horses, and he was buried in Jerusalem with his fathers in the city of David. And all the people of Judah took Azariah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. He built Eloth and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his father. So there's a little blip, okay? A bad situation under Amaziah. His son succeeds him, Azariah, and he rebuilds, and he expands the kingdom, and it looks good again. Um, Going on, verse 23, in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. This is back to the northern kingdom, and he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam the first, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. That's the spiritual, not religious ideology. He restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant. Look at this. Who? Jonah. Yes, that Jonah, son of, son of Amittai, the prophet, who is from gath Hefer. Now, this is an important passage of scripture. Um... The reason why it's important is because we know Jonah from the book of Jonah. This is the Jonah that will refuse to go preach to Nineveh because Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria. And Assyria is about to breathe down the neck of the northern kingdom of Israel. And Jonah prophesies that Jeroboam will be able to expand the kingdom of Israel, God's nation. And it happens. And it actually becomes a little prideful issue for jo- Jonah, the, the prophet, because now he's seen his, his ministry vindicated by God's blessing on Israel. And it kind of, and I think this, it really contributes to his reluctance to listen to God when God says, go and preach to the city of Nineveh. And what does he say in chapter four of Jonah? He says, I didn't want to go preach because I knew you were merciful. And if they repented, you would show mercy and you wouldn't destroy them. And right now, God, I need you to destroy them because I want my kingdom to last. I want my nation to last. Isn't it incredible to think that even the prophets we're subjected to pride. And what, what do we see repeated in the decline of Israel is this self-trust, the self-confidence, this overwhelming you know, boastfulness in God's people. And God does not spare them. He will bring them down because he doesn't want you living with pride. He'd rather you live hum- humbly with him than alone in pride and hubris. And that is a hard word to hear, but someone needs to hear it right now. Verse 26, For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free. There was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, son of Joash. God will even use Jeroboam, this wicked king, to save Israel because he cares about his people and the promises that he made to them. Verse 28. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did, and his might, how he fought, and how he restored Damascus and Hamath, Judah, and Israel, are they not written in the books of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jeroboam slept with his fathers, the kings of Israel, and Zechariah, his son, reigned in his place. Finally, here we go, chapter 15. Now the, the narrative is going to pick up with one king in Judah and several kings in the northern kingdom. Six kings in the northern kingdom will rise and fall while there's one king in Judah. He's a significant king. And this text tells us his name is Amaziah, but you better know him. You, you probably know him better as Uzziah. And if that doesn't, name doesn't ring a bell, um, we're going to talk about him a little bit, but he comes, he's the, he's the king that dies 
And Isaiah mentions in Isaiah chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And King Uzziah was a good king in the southern kingdom of Judah. Let's talk about how 2 Kings unpacks his story. Verse 1 from 15, chapter 15. In the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, that is Uzziah. Now, again, this is just another name. And <laughs> I swear, the Bible does this just to confuse you and give people like me work to make sure that I can make it clear to you. This is Uzziah. And even later on in this text, it will refer to him as Uzziah. But his other name is Azariah. By the way, Uzziah means the Lord is strengthened. And Azariah means the Lord has helped. Or it's vice versa. It's one of those two things. The Lord is strengthened. The Lord has helped. This is a helped, blessed, strengthened king by God. Azariah slash Uzziah. So in the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, son of Amaziah, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 16 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned, look at this, 52 years. 52 years is a, I think that's the second longest reign in all of Judah's history. 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoiada of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. Nevertheless, again, the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. It's a famous, famous king. Isaiah mentions him in chapter six. We talked about this. He's a great king, but he had a problem with pride as well. And we're going to talk about how that goes down a little, a little bit later. Second Kings does not spend much time on his story, but let me just read it. And then we'll go to second Chronicles 26 to talk about it a little bit more. Verse five, and the Lord touched the king so that he was a leper to this day. Now that seems like it's out of nowhere, but it's not. We're going to talk about it in second Chronicles. So the Lord touched the king so that he was a leper to the day of his death. And he lived in a separate house. And Jotham, the king's son, was over the household, governing the people of the land. There's this co-regency between Uzziah and Jotham. Now the rest of the acts of Azariah and all that he did, are they now writing in the book of the, king, of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Azariah slept with his fathers and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David. And Jotham, his son, reigned in his place. Now this is Uzziah. And again, the scriptures in 2 Kings do not give you the best picture of what happened with Uzziah. And the reason why is because it's more dealing with the northern kingdom's decline. Whereas Second Chronicles is, is dealing more with the, uh, the problem in the southern kingdom and how it's come back to God. Because the chronicler is writing to exiles coming back to the land and the writer of Kings is writing to exiles who have already lost the land. There's a, a lot of contextual uh, issues with why certain things are in First and Second Kings and they're not in second, First and Second Chronicles, and there's a lot of things that are in First and Second Chronicles that are not in First and Second Kings. Did I just repeat myself? You get what I'm saying? Anyway, let's take a look at Uzziah because this is an important king. It says in Second Chronicles 26, verse 5, he set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. So there you have the repeated thing where the king has a tutor. He has a prophetic tutor who tells him how to fear God. And as long as he sought the Lord, the Bible says, God made him prosper. Man, underline that in your Bible. Circle that because that is true for you. As long as you seek the Lord, God will make you prosper. It is true. It is a blessing to seek God. It is for your good to seek God. Okay, so he's blessed. And look at how blessed Uzziah becomes. Verse 14, it says this, And Uzziah prepared for all the army, shields, spears, helmets, coats of mail, bow, bows, and stones for slinging. In Jerusalem, look at this in verse 15, He made machines invented by skillful men to be on the towers in the corners to shoot arrows and great stones. And his fame spread far, for he was marvelously helped. Remember, that's what his name means, helped by God, till he was strong. And then look at verse 16, But when he was strong, he grew proud 
to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. So the king tried to become a priest. The king tried to do the duties of a priest. And those three offices, prophet, priest, and king, were separated because there's only one man that fills all three roles. That is Jesus. He is the prophet, priest, and king. But Uzziah thought, I will also be the priest. And the priest come and say, you can't do that. That's not for you. This is a, you know, there's a separation of powers here so that nobody has all the power in God's land. He refuses. He ignores the priest. And he is stricken with leprosy as 2 Kings chapter 15 has illustrated for us. And eventually he is cordoned off in a separate house and he dies about 16 years later. Sad story. But this is the problem with pride. It takes us down faster than we realize Verse 8, back to 2 Kings chapter 15. In the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, reigned over Israel in Samaria. Six months! <laughs> okay, now, let's get context here. What we're going to see is Uzziah's reign is like an underlayment for six successive and very short-lived kings in the northern kingdom. Case in point, Zechariah has six months on the throne, <laughs> and he doesn't even get that much uh, ink on the page. Verse 9, he did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. As his fathers had done, he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Now look at how this king's reign comes to, comes to an end in six months. It says in verse 10, Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and struck him down at Eblim and put him to death and reigned in his place. Now the rest of the deeds of Zechariah, behold, they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. Verse 12, this was the promise of the Lord that he gave to Jehu, your son, sons shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. And so it came to pass. Zechariah is the final king in the line of Jehu that God promised uh, to Jehu. It's just amazing to see how very deliberate the Bible continues to remind us that God's word comes to pass. At the end of the day, the Bible is asking you to trust its, itself, trust that it is the word of God. So Shalom betrays Zechariah and Shalom uh, becomes king in his place. Let's look at Shalom. Not even, not even six months. He gets one month on the throne. <laughs> Verse 13, Shalom, the son of Jabesh, began to reign in the 39th year of Uzziah, king of Judah, and he reigned one month. So from six months to one month in Samaria. Then Menahem, the son of Gadi, came up from Terza and came to Samaria, and he struck down Shalom, the son of Jabesh, in Samaria, and put him to death and reigned in his place. And the epitaph of Shalom is, now the, deeds, the rest of the deeds of Shalom and the conspiracy that he made, behold, they are written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. At that time, Menahem asked Tishva and all who were in it in his territory from Terza on because they did not open it to him. Therefore, he sacked it. He ripped open all the women in it who were pregnant. This is the sign of a failing culture. This is a sign of the failing culture. It is a, it is a culture that devalues human life and life in the womb. And it has a repeated succession of kings in rapid succession who are evil. And that's what we're seeing today. And that's what we saw in Kings. And it is history repeats. There's nothing new under the sun, Ecclesiastes says. And so here's, here we have the northern kingdom very quickly, precipitously now declining spiritually. Verse 17. In the 39th year of Azariah, that's Uzziah again, king of Judah, Menahem, the son of Gadi, began to reign over Israel, and he reigned 10 years. So he gets, he, that's pretty long, actually, 10 years in Samaria. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart all his days from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Pul, the king of Assyria, came against the land, and Menahem gave Pul a thousand talents of silver that he might help him to confirm his hold on the royal power. What's happening now? Taxes from the people are going to foreign adversaries to make sure that they stay nice, they play nice with Israel. And there becomes a, and you're going to see it, a growing burden of economic pressure on the people 
the more immoral the nation becomes. Hear that again. A greater economic pressure descends on the people, the further away the nation drifts from God. Is your budget tight? Are your finances low? Are you looking at the economy and saying, why does the president keep bragging about how great it is when I can't pay my bills? Our nation has slowly eroded away from God and we are paying the price economically. And it's going to get worse for Israel. It will probably get worse for us. Verse 22, Menahem exacted the money from Israel. That is from all the wealthy men, 50 shekels of silver from every man to give to the king of Assyria. So Menahem, you know who he is? He's Bernie Sanders. And he thinks that if we just tax the rich and pay off of our debts and, and get these guys off of our backs, we are going to be blessed. And this is exactly the sign of a failed nation. Overtaxation, going after the rich, thinking that money will solve your problems. No, money doesn't solve your problems. It oftentimes creates more problems. You need your heart right before God. Not more money, more God. And it says this. So the king of Assyria turned back and did not stay there in the land. Now that's the worst thing that could possibly happen because now the king of Assyria knows I know how to get money out of these people. All I got to do is turn up the pressure and they're going to pay me off. <laughs> money does not solve problems. Verse 21. Now the rest of the deeds of Menahem and all that he did, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Menahem slept with his fathers and Pekahiah, his son, reigned in his place. <sighs> Get repetitive here. Verse 23. In the 50th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekahiah, the son of Menahem, began to reign over Israel and Samaria and reigned two years. So now we go from 10 years to two years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Again, this repeated refrain of the sins of Jeroboam because self-directed spirituality does not satisfy or strengthen your life. The sins of Jeroboam, my way faith, my way religion, is a failed experiment way before you and even now if it is you. So this guy, Pekahiah, also follows in the sins of Jeroboam, which Jeroboam made Israel to commit, verse 25. And Pekah, the son of Remaliah, his captain, conspired against him with 50 men of the people of Gilead and struck him down in Samaria in the citadel of the king's house with Ar Argob and Aria. He put him to death and reigned in his place. Now the rest of the deeds of Pekahiah and all that he did, behold, they are written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. In the 50, verse 27, in the 52nd year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekah, the son of Remaliah, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 20 years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam and of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. And now we have another king. In the days of, or, well, this king Pekah is dealt with here in verse 29. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came and captured Ijon, Abel-Beth, Maaka, Joanah, Kadesh, Hazor, Gilead, and Galilee. Galilee sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's all the northern regions. That's where Jesus is going to do his ministry. All the land of Naphtali. And he carried the people captive to Assyria. Then Hosea, the son of Elah, made a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Remaliah, and struck him down and put him to death and reigned in his place in the 20th year of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. Now the rest of the acts of Pekah and all that he did, behold, they are written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel. Now you see the nation falling apart. Tiglath-Pileser is being... Uh, dominant in the region. He is taking captive their lands. He's taking their people and bringing them to Assyria. He's going to displace them. This was the Assyrians' mo uh, mantra. That's how they would invade for other nations. They would take their people captive and they would interbreed them with people that had taken captive from other nations. These people, their capital, remember, was what? Uh, Samaria. And it's from all the northern regions of Israel. The Samaritans get intermarried with other... The, the, the Jews from the Samaritan... Uh, the, the region around Samaria, 
intermarry with all these other nations and pagans, and they become the Samaritans mentioned in the first, uh, in the first century in the, in the book of the, in the Gospels. So, so here you have it. Here's how the Bible all comes together for you. If you ever wondered, where did the Samaritans come from? They come from right here. When the Assyrians took and interbred the Jews in the northern kingdom with all the other captives that they took from other nations. Tiglath-Pileser was a powerful Assyrian king, and he dominated the northern region, and he almost destroys the southern kingdom, but he doesn't. An angel of the Lord strikes down his army and, and spares them during the days of Hezekiah. We'll read about that later. But this is what's happening, and this is how the Bible all comes together. It's an amazing thing. Uh, verse 32. In the second year of Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 30, now back to the southern kingdom, okay? He was 25 years old and began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusha, the son of Zadok, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all his father Uzziah had done. Nevertheless, again, the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings to the high places. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. Now the rest of Jotham, uh, of the acts of Jotham and all that he did, are they now written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah. In, the days, in those days, the Lord began to send Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, against Judah. Jotham slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father, and Ahaz, Ahaz his son, reigned in his place. Whew. That's the three chapters. <laughs> I'm sorry if all the reading um, is too much for you, but there are things that we can tap into here that have been repeated throughout this content already that we can kind of summarize some lessons for us about the cost of compromise. <laughs> Bottom line is compromise comes with a cost. We see it in the Northern Kingdom in terms of their self-willed, self-imposed ideology of spirituality. We see it in the Southern Kingdom where they do not remove the high places and the stumbling blocks of idolatry comes back to bite them. The question that I have for you is simply this, are you all in with God? There's no miserable person on the planet than somebody who is half in with God. You're not supposed to live like this, church. You're not. Give your all to Jesus. Give your money, your time, your, your talents, your family. God first. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Paul says, I have considered all things that were to my gain, as rubbish compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. The only way to live at peace in this life is to live at peace with the one who gave you your life. And you got to put to death. This is what scripture says in Romans chapter 8, verse 13. It says this, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Israel's failure was to fail to put to death the high places, it was a failure to come to the truth, to follow their own self-willed spirituality, and it became a stumbling block for them. It became a thorn in their flesh. Yet, okay, in spite of their waywardness and in spite of our waywardness, God's promises are sure. If we confess our sins, 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 says, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If you have breath, it's not too late to turn back to God. If you have serious issues in your life with sin, it is not too late. When it's too late is when you stop breathing. So <laughs> confess now. Turn to God now. Serve God now. He will receive you back. You're not too far gone. Don't let this content overwhelm you with dread. 
help, cause it to let it help you see the goodness of God in the face of your own evil. But the last thing that I want to say, kind of nationally, big picture, a nation removed from God's voice is a nation removed from prosperity. Remember, one of the big moments in chapter 13 is that Elisha dies. That's the end of the prophetic word to the northern kingdom. And just, what, two chapters later, they're handed over to the king of Assyria. It was that quick. And then the, the success of kings, six kings in 52 years. It happens quick. So, so the point that I'm making to you as a personal, on a personal level is what Hebrews says, if you hear God's voice today, do not harden your heart, but turn, repent, trust him. Trust him because judgment comes swiftly. And I would not be doing my, my, I would not be doing you a favor if I was to say, you know, you got time, you got time there, but you never know how much time you have left. No one knows. The scripture says today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen. That's the show. That's the content. And if you want to support the channel, I would very much appreciate it. Cash app, TimHashLive or TimHashLive.com slash support. Next week, we are doing 10 questions with Tim. No deep dive, no deep end, but there will be a 10 questions with Tim. At noon next week, send your questions in to ask at TimHashLive.com or down in the comments below. We'll try to get to them. Some of you have complained or at least voiced concern because I haven't gotten to your questions even though you submitted them earlier. I am going to put you on a priority list. So if you have uh, submitted a question a couple times and we haven't answered it, send it one more time and say, I have done this for the third time, fourth time, or second time. I want this question answered. Okay, I am going to make you a priority and get your questions answered. So send them in with that notation. Do me one last favor, like the channel, or the, I'm sorry, the video, share the video and subscribe to the channel. It helps with the algorithm and it helps many other people hear the good word of the scriptures that can save their souls. God bless you. Have a great night in Jesus' name.